Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. How's your Thanksgiving? You all look well fed. A little bit sleepy? Hope you got a chance to see some people you really love, maybe some faces you haven't seen in a while. And I also hope that in the midst of all of that, you got a chance to pause and think about all the reasons God has given us to be grateful in our hearts. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave, and it's my privilege to serve here as lead pastor. And I've been working through a series called Radical. Uh, it's, It's a series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it's lasted us a while. We've journeyed together through it. And now we're in the last three messages. These are the three messages with which Jesus himself brought this sermon of his to a close. And we're going to look at the first of these final three messages. And the title of the message is The Road We Choose. The Road We Choose. And the text is drawn from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Let's look at it together. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Let's just bow for a second, and let's pray before we get into the word. God, I believe this morning that what you want from us is not agreement or even admiration, but you want a response of our whole lives. And we acknowledge that that is not going to be easy to give you. We will need your help to respond to you in this message the way that you are inviting us to respond. And so now I pray that you would help us to receive your invitation and to make a courageous and faith-filled response to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I think one of the most powerful metaphors for human life is that of a road. There's something compelling even just about the photograph of a road, isn't there? I mean, I've, I've got on my, I collect desktop wallpapers from my computer because I'm a total nerd. And one of my hobbies is when I see a good photograph, I love saving it on my hard drive, and I change the picture that circulates on my desktop. And I, I've noticed the other day that maybe 25% of the pictures on my computer are roads. Just somebody put a camera down on the bottom of a road, and you just see this open stretch, and there's something about that image that calls to me. And I think one of the most compelling metaphors for life is a road because Whether you intend to or not, every second you draw a breath, you're on a journey. You're moving somewhere. You're headed in a direction. Even the choice to sit still and be a couch potato, to be totally passive, is nonetheless a choice that we're making. It is not an option to sit still and not move in life. Even the desire to not move cannot protect you from moving constantly every second that you are alive. And because life is a journey of constant movement, one step at a time, we're headed in a direction somewhere, and that journey we're on will determine where that journey ends for us. I think it's a powerful metaphor because it perfectly describes reality as we experience it and as God portrays it in Scripture. Every day, you and I will make Lots of little choices that have almost no consequence in the big picture of life. Whether you decide to eat at Burger King or McDonald's, whether you decide to drive a Ford truck or a Chevy truck, even whether you decide to use an Apple product or a PC-based product, a Windows-based product, an Android-based product, gasp, I'm going to actually say it, it doesn't matter. I know we act like it makes a big, di- big difference, but actually it matters for almost nothing. Those are the kind of choices that only make a small impact on your life. But every now and then, 
you'll get a chance to make a decision that will define everything that comes after that decision. Ladies, when a man, hopefully, maybe, got on one knee and asked you to give him the rest of your life till death do us part, you're like, oh, man, really? And you looked into his eyes and said, are you really the one? And you said something to that man. If you're married, you said something that defined everything that came after. That face, whether you like it or not, is the one you're going to look at. As it drags down, droops, grows fuzzy, gray, whatever. See, some decisions in life affect everything that happens after. And that's why I think these decision points can rightly be portrayed as a fork in the road. If a road is a metaphor for the journey of life, certain decisions are just going to be little curves or winding paths in the road, but some of the decisions we make will bifurcate our lives so that based on what I choose, my life will go in one direction or in radically another direction. And I can't insist that regardless of what choice I make, I will somehow end up in the same place because these are decisions that completely define our whole lives. Because road one will take you somewhere that road two will not, the choice you make at each fork ends up becoming the story of your life. I wish we could choose these forks when they come up so we have a long running start, a lot of time to ponder it, but I think life is a lot like driving in Boston. I don't know if you've ever driven in Boston, but it's a city designed by crazy people. I don't know how anyone gets anywhere because you're driving with GPS and there are eight lanes that go under the city and all of a sudden it says, okay, now if you want to go to the place you want to go, you got to get to the third from the right and exit right now. And they give you about 100 feet to make that decision and traffic's moving at 50 miles an hour. And you think, oh man, too late. And wherever you were, you, you, I wish we could always see the forks in the road coming, but sometimes you're rushed into a decision and there it is, the rest of your life. Maybe it's a single act of passion that has lifelong consequences. Maybe it's a decision you should have made, but instead, out of fear or insecurity, you chose inaction. I'm not going to risk it. I'm not going to do it. And it has led to a lifetime of missed opportunity and regret. Or maybe it was a great choice you made. And because you made the right choice at the right time, it is brought into your life a long string of benefit and blessing. These forks in the road are not many. You don't get that many opportunities to make a decision that splits your life into a before or an after, a left or a right. Most decisions only curve the journey a little bit, but these decisions define us. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. In other words, he is now calling for a response. Everything he said in this sermon up to this point has painted a beautiful, compelling picture of the way humanity and life on earth should be. He's describing what life in his kingdom, when he rules as king, will look like. It's a world filled, a kingdom filled, with people who are not two-faced. They're not hypocrites. They're true to their word. It's filled with people who are peacemakers, who are gentle, meek, who put others before themselves, who treat you the way they want to be treated, who pray to God in the confidence that the Father who hears their prayers loves them and intends to be good to them. And he's painted this picture of what life is supposed to be like when he gets to define how life is. And now that everybody is caught up, and I imagine that when Jesus was preaching, everyone hung on every word. I got to believe that Jesus was a good communicator. I, I just, I'd be so disappointed if I could travel back in time and Jesus was like, um, so, um, um, yeah, um, so. That would be disappointing. I think when Jesus preached, everybody was completely captivated. And as he painted this picture of the world the way it should be, the way he wants to make it, everybody's stirred in their hearts. But now he says, I have not preached this message and given you this picture 
to get your agreement or your admiration. That's not what he's after. He doesn't want us to like this picture. He wants us now to choose this picture. Everything that this sermon was about to this point leads to this moment where what he says, he looks everyone in the eye and says, now it's your turn. I've shown you the picture. You choose now. And even a decision not to choose is a choice because I have set before you a fork in the road. And what you decide in this moment has a lot to do with what your life will look like and where it will finish that journey. It's not a threat. It's not a warning of impending doom. It is a heartfelt but urgent invitation. And what he's saying to us is, now that I've shown you my kingdom, the ball is in your court, and you have to make a choice about that. You have to make a choice about what I've said and on what foundation you will build the rest of your life. And so he gives this compelling and urgent invitation, enter through the narrow gate. And he describes two gates or two roads, and some commentators have done some very tortured mental gymnastics to distinguish what's the difference between the gate and a road. Honestly, I side with those commentators who say, who really cares? It's not that important, the distinction between gate and the road. What matters is this. He's contrasting two things that are incredibly different. They cannot be made to agree. This door and this door, this road and this road will not run parallel to each other. They will divide your life into very different directions. And when he says enter through this one, what he's saying is one of these roads leads to one place. It's the place you want to go. And the other of these roads leads to a place you don't want to go, but will very likely end up if you choose that road. And he says to us, choose this one. And it requires intention. It requires a choice. You can't just say, let's see where life takes me. Because when you drift, the currents take you here. The only way to get on this road is to answer the invitation and make that choice. It is to say in my heart, I decide that's where I'm going. Because here's the thing. The road we choose determines where our journey ends. Now, when it comes to navigating actual roads, that's common sense. But I learned a hard lesson about this five years ago. I've shared this story with a a few of you when you've come over to our house for dinner or something. But about five years ago, I got a chance to do some ministry in London. And we were supposed to do some ministry in Lyon, France, but that meeting got canceled because of some church conflict. That's why a lot of ministry gets canceled is because of church conflict. And so because we had an extra day, we decided, let's go do some sightseeing in France. My host was a native French-speaking guy, but he lived in London. And so I said, can you take me over to Paris? I really want to see Paris. So we rode the English Channel. uh, We rode the ferry across the English Channel. I don't know if you could see this. We started here, and we went to Calais. And I thought, and we we took the ferry because we wanted to use his car. We were too cheap to rent a car. And I thought, when you land in Calais, there will be this giant neon sign that said, Paris, follow this, this sign. There was nothing. We got out, and there was like a John Deere tractor dealership, some farms, and no sign. So I look at my host, and he's like, I don't know. I've never driven to Paris before. So we start going from house to house, farm to farm, asking people, how do we get to Paris? And everyone's like giving us... This 30-minute, you go this way, then you go this way. And finally, he goes, let me just pull out my GPS. And he had to set it for French language. And he put in what he thought was the best landmark, Gare du Nord. That's the big train station in the north end of Paris. It is what everybody's heard of. Everybody goes to visit. I'm like, why didn't you put in the Eiffel Tower? But he put in Gare du Nord. And he assured me, don't worry about it. This is the biggest landmark in Paris. We'll get there. And he said, I'm very sleepy. Will you drive? I'm just going to take a nap. What is this? So he's got me driving his English car on the wrong side of the car. I'm driving on the right side of the road in France. I'm completely discombobulated. But he goes to sleep. I'm driving for about three hours following the GPS prompts. And I'm no linguist. But I'm looking at the signs and I said, you know... I." I don't know French, but I don't think them signs are French. 
So after three hours, I finally wake him up and go, hey, Nick, listen, what is that sign? I don't think that's French. He goes, oh, 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 oh. And he says, that's Flemish. We're in Belgium. Now, I've been lost before, never like a whole country lost, but this is like, we're now in Belgium, and it turns out that there is a north station in Brussels that in French is called the Gare du Nord. And in fact, it was much closer to Calais than the one in Paris. So, of course, the GPS preferentially pushed that one to the top of the list. And I was driving at like 60 miles an hour towards Brussels. Now, I don't know if you ever had an experience of getting that lost, but what I learned on that experience is where you point yourself, the road you choose, has everything to do with where you end up. I had every intention, every desire, every confidence that with every passing mile, I could see the Eiffel Tower, I could taste the croissants, I could smell the coffee. Little did I know that every mile that passed, I was rushing headlong in a direction I did not want to go. What about your life? Because I know that most of us feel confident we're headed someplace. We have this picture of the life I want to have. We have this idea of how I want these days on earth to wind down for me. But that's really not up to us to determine. The road we choose determines where we end up. My intention, my desire, even my confidence does not make one road lead somewhere else that it does not. And what Jesus says is kind of frightening. He says that the road that leads to destruction is easier to find and much more comfortable to travel than the road that leads to life. It's not a popular message these days. We don't talk much about heaven or hell Sin and forgiveness, those are not topics that sadly we hear enough about in the church. But the truth is that the journey of the Christian faith begins at that place. That there are two destinations set before us, and the road we choose is taking us steadily towards one of those two final destinations. And what he says is that the path that leads to destruction is wide and broad. Here's what it means. All, everything goes on that road. Nobody's hassling you about how fast you're going, what rules you're following, which side. As long as you leave other people alone, you are free to travel that road on your own terms. You get to decide how things should work, what seems fair, what seems right. And people will not argue with you because they're all busy deciding those things for themselves. You have a lot of fellow travelers on the wide road because the wide road is a road of very little resistance. Every time I drive on the newly expanded I-90 going east from here, I have that image ringing through my head because I remember what I-90 used to be like, and now it almost seems like a dream. Six lanes, 70 miles, 80, 90, sometimes an hour. Nobody's in your way. Pastor Frank has to drive that path every day on his commute to and from the office, and I envy him. Just driving that newly expanded I-90 is such a joy because I remember what a parking lot it used to be. Especially when they were doing the construction, it was horrible. And all those fake photo and four signs that tried to get you to go 45. And now it's just opened up. And I think that's the way the road that leads to destruction feels like. Just let's go. It's comfortable here. No one's in my face. Nobody's breathing threats or warnings. It's just Find your own path and go. You decide what works. You decide what's right for you. And I understand why that's appealing. i got to tell you, there are a lot of days when I wish that's the way it really worked. But what he says is that that road, despite the ease of the journey, ends in a place no one sets out to go. See, I don't think anybody sets out to punch in GPS destruction. Let's head there. 
But when the road is moving so smoothly and so quickly, we stop asking questions. It's just a joy to drive. There are times when I'm on I-90 and I don't even remember where I'm going because I'm just like, I wish this road would never stop. And then I get to 294 and I remember, oh yeah, (laughs) it ends. It ends in destruction. I don't think that it's anybody's goal to end in a place of destruction. But in fact, I think that's where a lot of people have aimed their journey. And Jesus, when he calls us to find, to seek with all our hearts this narrow gate, he is not threatening us. He is urgently inviting us. There is a way that leads to life. I've set it out before you. Come and choose this particular road. goes on to say that the other road, the one we're meant to find, is narrow and it's small. A lot of people have believed that what this means is God is messing with us. He's making the good road really hard to find. And in fact, when it says few find it, only if you find it, that what that means is God is very exclusivist. He doesn't want a lot of people there. He, it's kind of like Discovery Cove. Only a limited number of people get in, and it makes the experience for everyone there much nicer. But that's not the spirit of Jesus' words at all. Throughout the Gospels, it is very clear that that's not his spirit or his heart at all. There are many instances where what he says is, I want everyone to be saved. Many will be liberated by what I do on the cross. God's desire is not to exclude as many as possible from this place, but what he's saying is this road is narrow by definition because it is rigorous. It's not a road you enter on your own terms by your own rules and your own wits. It's a road that has regulations. It's a road that requires navigation. You can't drift onto this road by accident. You must be looking for it because it ends in a place you want to be. This path that leads to life has to be entered on God's terms and not our own. Imagine that you are standing in a line for a blood donation and you saw this guy, you were the last person in line for a blood donation, and you saw this guy who kept walking up to the line. He's like, should I, oh man, no, I don't, I should, oh man, no. And then he's talking it over with somebody he came with, and he's looking at the line. He comes, and, he, and you're like, dude, what's the big deal? It's just a blood donation. Get in line and shut up. And what if he got in line behind you and you ask him, bro, what was that whole drama all about? Why were you so hesitant about standing in this line. And what if he said to you, I don't know how you're so comfortable. You're in the kidney donation line. See, I think some of us are standing in line comfortable because we're not really sure what we signed on for. What he said is, this is a rigorous journey. It's not come and check it out like a hobby. He's saying, if you come, you come with all of yourself. Everything on the line. This is a journey where the price of admission is no other road, no other path, no other priority. Everything is this kingdom. Everything is Jesus. Everything is what he invites you into. And you leave at the door, at the gate, all the other things that you are carrying. I think the wiser person is not the believer who thinks this is really easy and comfortable, but the unbeliever who's hesitant at the door because he recognizes this is not a joke. I don't know how all of you keep showing up looking so happy. It's freaking me out. I understand even from this distance that what Jesus is asking for is everything. I think the church in America is filled with people who are standing in a kidney donation line and think they're in a blood donor line. And are in for the surprise of their lives when they realize that the invitation of this road was for everything. It wasn't to be fond of Jesus, an admirer of Jesus, an agreer with Jesus, but one who has seen in him a treasure worth everything else. 
has sold and surrendered everything to embark on this journey because he is of surpassing worth and value and the life he holds out is better than everything on the other side of that that I plan to have for myself. Because of this, Jesus says that the road is narrow in terms of hardship as well. That word narrow that he uses is based on a Greek word from which we also derive words for trouble, persecution, hardship. What he says is that there's very little in this world that will encourage you to follow Jesus. The choice to follow Jesus will create a lot of friction in your life. It's not going to be an easy or comfortable journey. It's a journey of self-denial in a world that preaches self-indulgence. Think about how much of the message of this world is you deserve everything. It's good to be comfortable. Don't do things the hard way. Don't be stupid and struggle. Take it easy. And yet Jesus invites us to pick up our cross every day, deny ourselves, and follow him. It's a call to love other people, even though what we really want is for other people to love us more. It's a call to joy, even when nothing in our circumstances points us towards joy. When everything is falling apart. It's also a hardship or a narrow gate, a narrow road, because it's entered through the passage of repentance. Before you can join the journey of this road that leads to life, at the very beginning you have to acknowledge the reason I'm on this road is because I am lost. I'm a sinner. I have a problem deep in my being and Jesus is the only one who can address that problem. The way that modern Christianity is presented, it sometimes feels like a self-improvement program. How do you have your best life now? How do you have a better marriage, better friendships, better health, better finances? But at the very beginning of the journey of the gospel is this simple admission, I am a sinner, and the biggest problem I have is not in the world around me or the jerks that accompany me. The biggest problem I have is the brokenness and the darkness of this heart that beats in me. I don't know what to do about this, but I have a problem, and I need that problem to be addressed. And I've got to tell you that this idea that the journey that leads to life begins with repentance, it's a big stumbling block for a lot of people. I've had people tell me, I don't feel like I need saving. My life actually feels better than yours. If I had your life, I'd look for a savior, but I have my life. My life is awesome. I'm so happy with my life, at least most of it. And I'm not sure where the urgency regarding a Savior comes from for you people. Some years ago, a reader wrote a letter to the editor of a Melbourne, Australia daily newspaper. I want you to hear the heart expressed in this letter. The reader wrote, After hearing Dr. Billy Graham on the air viewing him on television, and reading reports and letters concerning him and his mission, I am heartily sick of the type of religion that insists my soul and everyone else's needs saving, whatever that means. I've never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, although repetitive preaching insists that I do. Give me practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance, that acknowledges no barriers of color or creed, that remembers the aged and teaches children of goodness and not sin. If in order to save my soul, I must accept such a philosophy as I have recently heard preached, I prefer to remain forever damned. That's an honest letter. I really appreciate that letter because I think it speaks to what so many people feel in their hearts. And I totally understand why a person would feel this way. Especially if the life you're living is a very good life. 
When you're doing good and when you're experiencing good things, it's hard to feel the urgency or resonance with the message that we are lost and in need of saving. I think that second paragraph is also very compelling. But the thing is that the gospel and scripture is not at odds with that picture. What the gospel presents is, in fact, a very practical teaching on gentleness and tolerance, on accepting others, on doing away with bigotry and hatred, prejudice and judgment. But what the writer of this letter does not recognize is that those are not societal problems that can be fixed with instructions. They are moral and spiritual problems that arise out of the sinfulness of the human heart, including his or her own. That we cannot achieve this utopian world of tolerance and acceptance and goodness just by teaching differently because the barrier is not ignorance, it's the sinfulness of the human heart. It is this, that if I wandered by accident into utopia, my arrival would ruin it, and so would yours. Isn't that true? Because as soon as you enter this place of perfection, your own broken, sinful, stubborn heart will eventually rear its head and start to cause problems. And so will everybody else's. We all want that kind of world. That's what we want our world to look like and feel like, but the greatest barrier exists in our own sinful state. And until someone does something decisive about that sin problem, all the instruction and positivity in the world will not steer the course of our world or our lives any differently. Jesus says in John 10, 7, very clearly, I'm going to tell you what, it, what the truth is. I am the gate. When Jesus invites us to enter through the gate, he's not inviting us to adopt a certain lifestyle or to embrace a certain belief system. He's inviting us into a deeply committed relationship with himself. The heart of the gospel is not a set of moral choices or a set of doctrines. It is that Jesus Christ becomes the central figure of my whole life now. He is the one who saves me, and he is the one who leads me every step of the way. Every question, every decision revolves around him. It's all in. Everything revolves around this central figure, and that's a complete departure from the way I used to live. Because the way I used to live is, am I okay with this? Is this what I want? Will this take me where I intend to go? And when Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, he's saying, pass through me. Let me become the central, defining, saving figure of your entire earthly existence. Leave at the front of that gate everything you carried and let me now carry you. You'd have to be a fool to think that's a small invitation. That's everything. If as you're sitting here in your 1050th church service and you don't realize you've done that, be sober-minded and look again at the gospel at what Jesus is inviting us to. Half the reason we are bored in church is because we're doing it wrong. We've put very little on the line. We're wondering when this ride gets exciting. I think Pastor or Professor Scott McKnight put it really well. He said, so the gate is not just mild association with Jesus or some kind of general affiliation, but a radical commitment to Jesus as the one who is King and Lord who shapes all of life for us. To enter the narrow gate is to enter into a relationship with Jesus who really is King and Lord, who saves and rules, and the relationship entails following him. The bar is raised very high. The invitation to enter the narrow gate is the invitation to release everything and choose this one Lord, this one Savior, this one central figure as everything in your new life. Does that describe the terms on which you continue to identify as a Christian and a follower of Jesus? Now, so far, that's one of the the worst invitations I've ever heard because it's all cost. It's all challenge. It's all sacrifice, the price of admission. Why would anybody enter this gate? 
based on that invitation. I think that's the reason a lot of people hesitate at the door. I would, but it, it involves giving up everything. It's why some people hesitate at the door of parenthood or marriage as well. I think you're wise if you take a breath and really think about whether you want to be a mom or dad. Moms and dads in the room, can I get an amen? If I describe parenthood to you entirely in terms of cost, commitment, the sleepless nights, the thousands of dollars you will thanklessly spend, the hours and hours spent on your knees in prayer and anxious worry and supplication for kids who don't even realize that you're praying for them. All the disgusting explosions up the back of that onesie. So horrible, you got to throw the clothes away. You don't even want to ruin your washing machine with that junk. And every kid's done it. And you've actually had poop on the back of your neck. That's how far up it can go. And we've cleaned it. And if I painted that picture for you and said, now, who wants to make some babies? Everyone would be like, uh, no, I, I don't think so. But if I told you what it's like to hold your baby in your arms and look into the face of this child and say, that's my daughter, my son. If I could tell you about what it feels like to watch them grow up and become a human being and take on the qualities of God to show character, to show leadership, to show godliness, and the the pride you feel, the gratification you feel in your heart, I would say all the cost and all the sleepless nights are abundantly worth it. I think we could say the same thing about marriage. There's a reason the world conceives a marriage as a ball and chain. It is a lot of restriction. It is a lot of cost. And if that's all we hear, who in their right mind would choose monogamy? But when you stare into the face of someone you've fallen in love with, all the cost and hardship in the world seem like a very small price to pay. Jesus doesn't just call us to a high commitment relationship. He says, look at me and you'll realize you're getting the better part of that invitation. Because for the rest of your life's journey, I will carry you, I will lead you, I will walk with you. You will never, ever be alone again. You will never cry out to a dark, cold universe wondering what's the meaning of all of this. You will never wonder in existential fear, where will I end up when all of this is over? And even when uninvited, unexpected tragedy cuts that journey short, you will have clarity even in those hard moments of where your life is headed and who stands with you. Let me close with a story because I think stories communicate truth better than a long list of beliefs and principles often do. In the next few minutes, I want to introduce you to this man, Dr. Takeshi or Takashi Nagai. Have any of you heard of this man? Okay, well, let me introduce you to him. He's become a hero of mine. Um, He was a radiologist who practiced medicine in Nagasaki, Japan, in the 1940s. He wasn't a Christian for most of his life, but there was this young lady in his town who prayed for him for years that he would find the Lord Jesus Christ. Her name was Midori, and she came from a long line of what they call Japan's hidden Christians. See, Japan has always been very xenophobic, good SAT word, fear of strangers, side of the room. And, and Japan has always been very resistant to outside religions. And so from the 1600s on, there was some of the worst, most violent persecution of Christians that the church's history has ever seen. When you read the accounts, or if you've ever seen the movie Silence, you begin to see a little picture of the kind of persecution Japanese Christians endured just to continue being Christian against an entire culture and civilization that was aimed against them. And Midori came from a long line of these hidden Christians who fought through terrible persecution to cling to Jesus. And as she prayed for this man, eventually he came to Christ and was gloriously saved, and he married her. 
As a radiologist during a time when radiation was not very well understood, his work as a radiologist exposed him to high levels of radiation, and he contracted leukemia because of his work. Although he was helping patients become well, his work caused him to become terminally ill. And one day he came home and had to tell his wife, Midori, I've been told that I have leukemia because of my work. I'm given three years to live. And she heard that news and took it in. Her response was to fall in front of the family crucifix. It was a cross that had been handed down for 250 years, guarded and preserved against this kind of persecution. And she wept and prayed in front of Jesus. And when she finally got up and her shaking had stopped, she acknowledged with her husband that before we married, we said if our lives would be spent for the glory of God, then both life and death for us would be beautiful. You got sick doing very, very important work, and it was for his glory. How could he know, how could she know, that even before leukemia got him, when the American forces dropped an atomic bomb on Nagasaki, she would be instantly incinerated in the first seconds of the attack. He was farther out at a hospital and miraculously survived the bombing of Nagasaki. He had terrible injuries as a result, but when he finally stumbled back to the heap of rubble that used to be his city, and he found where his house used to be, he found just a flattened pile of ashes, and in the kitchen, or at least what was the kitchen, he found a pile of ashes and bones that once was his wife. His heart was broken, He was already struggling with terminal illness, had burns all over his body, but the cries and the wails of the people around him in his devastated city reached his ears, and he began to be a doctor again. And he began to care for the sick, and he began leading some of these people to Christ. Some of the people led to Christ were devastated by this and angry at the universe, angry about life. And he showed them the hope that the gospel brought. And he began forming a small community of disciples in the ashes of Nagasaki. The church where they used to worship was one of the landmarks that the bomber had used to navigate for the bombs dropping. And the church itself, it was called Urukami Cathedral. By the way, this is the before and after picture of the same section of Nagasaki. It was just flattened completely by the bomb. And that was the church. It was destroyed. It was a beautiful, historic church. But somehow the bell that was in the church tower survived the bombing. And Dr. Nagai and some of his disciples made a makeshift frame, and they hung that bell, and they began ringing it. And it became a beacon of hope for the people in the city. Death everywhere around them. But the sound of that bell started to call people out of the rubble, and they made their way to the hospital and began to receive care. And little by little, hope started to rise. Many people encouraged him to chronicle everything that was happening, and eventually Dr. Nagai wrote a book called The Bells of Nagasaki, talking about how hope rose out of the ashes of death. It became a top-grossing film in just a matter of a year, And it was a bright ray of hope because around that same time as World War II had come to a close, the full scale of the atrocities of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust were coming to light, and people were horrified at just how wicked human beings could be, how sad and fallen our human condition was, and there was despair everywhere. And in the midst of that despair, this book and this film served as a ray of hope for a lot of people. As money from the book and the film started to pour in, Dr. Nagai now had the resources to move to the United States and receive life-saving medical treatment. All of his friends urged him to do it, but he considered his calling and made the decision to remain in Nagasaki. And he finished out his days withering against this leukemia and leading many people to Christ, rendering medical care for as long as he could. And he touched Hundreds and hundreds of lives. 
Luminaries from all over the world sought him out because they needed hope in the aftermath of World War II. Even the emperor of Japan, who was considered by the citizens to be a demigod, whose face the average citizen was not even permitted to look at directly, left Tokyo and made a pilgrimage to Nagasaki to visit this man. And when he died, 20,000 people attended his funeral. And he was buried in a simple grave next to his wife, Midori. And he lived his last years on earth filled with joy and purpose in a place where death and fire had fallen out of the sky unexpectedly. And the reason I'm sharing that story with you is because he and his wife had a, a, a sense of where their lives were headed. And completely uninvited, someone dropped the bomb out of the sky. And here's the crazy part. It wasn't even supposed to land on Nagasaki. It was supposed to land on another city far away. But bad weather caused the pilot to reroute. He said, i got to drop this thing somewhere. And he picked that city. And just like that, the course of their whole lives was changed in an instant. If your sense of well-being in this life depends on things going well, on you having the freedom to do the things you like, to hold on to the things you value, then your well-being is very fragile. Because the truth is, none of us has any control over the timetable of our lives. There's only one truly meaningful decision any of us can make while we're alive on this earth that has any bearing on our final outcome. And that's the invitation Jesus gave at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. Enter the narrow gate. Make the choice. We don't do altar calls in churches anymore, but I think it's important that you understand I am speaking the same words that Jesus spoke when I say to you, whether this is your first church service or your thousandth, Choose the narrow gate. Don't put off this decision and just ride out the years. Choose the narrow gate. One of the things that keeps me awake at night is the thought that so many people sit in churches all over this world believing that the casual and superficial affiliation they have with Jesus is a saving faith. That they want to have the kingdom of heaven and everything they treasure on this earth at the same time. I want to just be faithful to Jesus and say to you that that is not a picture of the truth. There is a road that leads to life. And to find it, we have to release everything else and choose Jesus alone. If that describes your Christianity today, your feet are on solid ground. If that is not what describes your faith journey, then hear the invitation of Jesus. As I was writing this message, I paused repeatedly to pray because I felt like this morning in this place, there would be at least a couple who really need to hear this. And what I want to say to you, if the reason God was prompting me to pray was because you would be in this room today, was that his invitation is not for you to keep considering and keep mulling it over, but understand that that journey can begin for you right now. Right now. You can choose that narrow gate right now. And yes, you will give up much if you make that choice, but you will always gain more than you gave up. You will find that to be true. It's a step of faith, very costly faith but that's what you'll find. I want to invite you to bow with me. I don't know if it's possible to truly understand the gospel 
and feel numb or bored. It is a radical, transforming life that the gospel invites us into. And if your experience for years has been like driving on the newly extended I-90, zooming along at breakneck pace, no one in your way, no one hassling you, nothing weighing you down, pause for a moment and consider whether that experience tells you something about the road you've chosen. The road that leads to life is a wonderful road to be on. It ends in a very good place. But it's a rigorous road to travel. It requires everything from us. And Jesus then gives everything of himself. If you've never accepted that invitation, then this place and this culture in the church will not make sense to you. There's a reason all of this will be strange and boring to you. But if you accept that invitation, things will start to change. Jesus, I pray this morning that especially for those whom you have been calling to, as you set before them this fork in the road, they will choose the road now that leads to life. I pray that you will help them take this step of faith, that everything they will let go of as they start this journey will be quickly forgotten as they lay hold of a treasure they could not imagine. first step is so hard it's impossible for us to make without you so Jesus I pray that you will be present in this room and embrace the heart of those who are hesitant to say yes help them to make that first step and begin the journey that leads to life I also pray God that if any of us in this room are fully confident that we are headed on a road that leads to life but are in fact on the other road you will do whatever it takes to awaken us and change our course I pray that you will do that before time runs out I want to invite you just to take one minute and respond to God from wherever you are in your own words. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.